a slightly different fashion, shall we? Allow me to read a paragraph from a book. It's a short paragraph. It's a book I'm reckoning most of you know very, very well indeed, because this is an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, The Witch and the wardrobe, and in this section, these few sentences I'll read, you've got two girls, you've got Lucy and you've got Susan, and they're in conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. I'm sure you're probably thinking back, you probably know the scene, you know it very well. Ready for it? Shall we see Aslan? Asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mrs. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. He is the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then... He isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He isn't safe. But he is good. My friends, isn't it true that we in the contemporary church, we seem to be losing sight of the fact that it is the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom? Aren't we beginning to lose sight of that? Consider our society. Does it not hold God's gospel in contempt? It treats God's name merely as a swear word. But you don't just need to look out there. What about the contemporary church? Don't we seem to want to domesticate Jesus just through kind of excessive informality? You and I seem to be losing sight of the fact that the God that we are in here to worship tonight is a God of majesty. And he's a God of excellency. And he's a God of power. He's a God of holiness. Who is our God? Our God is a God who is to be feared. Well, this evening in First Samuel chapter 5, as we look at the three points of this sermon, I think a couple of truths will come out of this portion of Scripture. First of all, I think we're going to see here tonight that our God is not safe. I think we'll see that. If even a skim read of First Samuel 5 tells you that he is not safe. But I think we will also see tonight that though he is not safe, our God is good. And the first point that we need to look at tonight is this. We see here the victory of God. The victory of God in the overpowering of evil. The victory of God. 
Uh, okay, hopefully, if you were here, what was it, two weeks ago, not last week, was it? Uh, two weeks ago, hopefully you remember the background to First Samuel chapter 5. The background is that a really wicked people, like a horrible people, the Philistines, they have come in and attacked the people of Israel at a place called Aphek. And in the process of that attack, they have not just killed 30,000 Israelite men. What else have they done? They have carried off, do you remember, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, do we remember what that was, the Ark of the Covenant? It is that gold-plated box that symbolized the presence of God. Well, here, as we come in from chapter 4 into chapter 5, we see what they do with the Ark of the Covenant. What do the Philistines, Philistines do with the Ark? They set it up in the temple of Dagon. You heard of Dagon before. Dagon was... Uh, a god of agriculture, uh, a god of vegetation. Doesn't sound too ferocious, does it? A god of vegetation. But that's what he was, a god of agriculture, vegetation, that he was widely worshipped throughout the region. Now, I don't think you will do this. Make sure you don't. Make sure that we don't make a mistake here with this. Why have they set the ark up in the Temple of Dagon? I don't think for a second that they've done this because they want to worship Yahweh. That's not it, is it? Do you see what, what it is? The ark is a trophy of war, isn't it? Like, do you see the point the Philistines are making by doing this? They are saying, Dagon rules. That's the point of this. Dagon reigns. And they are trying, by setting the ark up in the temple, trying to say, trying to make Yahweh an attendant, a servant of their supreme and awesome God, Dagon. You see what they're trying to do. Now, I honestly think, I honestly think that what follows is supposed to be funny. Do you see that it's supposed to be humorous? Like, I think, honestly, like, generations of people have read this and laughed They've, led, they've read of this Dagon falling to the ground. You've got this picture of the Philistines trying to, trying to raise up, you know, trying to you know, get this supposedly all-powerful God. They're struggling to put him into place here, this idol. It's supposed, to be, it's supposed to be funny, you know. It's supposed to be there's an element of humor here. But I tell you this, now what I want us to do is just to note very quickly three details about the fall of Dagon. So you can maybe have your Bibles here, just three details. Firstly, notice that this idol falls to a position of worship. Do you see that? Like, what did you think the point was? Did you think the point was that Yahweh is more powerful than Dagon? Do you see now that it's actually, it's a, it's a bigger point than that? See, look at verse, what is it, verse 3. Dagon is, no, he doesn't just fall. Where does he fall? He falls before the ark of the Lord. And then think about the timing of it. Do you notice when it happens? It happens early in the morning at the first prescribed time for worship that we've got in Holy Scripture. So do you see the point? It's not just that Yahweh has caused him to fall. It's the point that Dagon's fallen here in adoration and, and, and worship and praise of God. Second thing, notice that it is entirely a work of God and God alone. See, how, how, does, how does God work so often through the Old Testament? 
Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree with me if I was to say God often works through human agency? Like, you know your Bibles. You know um, 1 Kings 17. You know that? Uh, God at, uh, at Mount Carmel and there's the false prophets and they are defeated. How does God defeat the false prophets? He does it through Elijah. Doesn't he? Or what about the Red Sea? You've got the Egyptian enemies. They're defeated. And how are they defeated? They're defeated through Moses. You see it? Human agency. Now, do you see it's very different here? Because what happens? The temple doors are closed. Who's inside the temple? It's just Yahweh. It's just Dagon. There's no humans about. And what is the outcome? Our God, without any help from humanity... Our God is victorious. And then there's the third detail, the the last of these details. See that the victory that God wins is total and comprehensive. Because I'm sure if you were alert when Johnny was reading this section of scripture out, did you notice Dagon doesn't just fall once? (laughs) Dagon falls twice. You know, you've got the Philistines, early in the morning, they go in, you, they open the door at the temple, second time round, what do they see? Dagon's fallen, but his head's off, and his hands are cut off. Now, now what, what's going on? Do you think it was the force of the fall? Is that what, 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 ah, think about the first reading. Just as David cut off Goliath's head, We are to understand that dismemberment was a sign in the ancient world of complete military conquest. You see the point that's being made? His head's gone, his hands are gone. What's the point? God victorious, utterly victorious over Dagon. So we see the points here. Let us now try and apply what we've got here. Because I, I honestly believe that this portion of scripture screaming at the, at the contemporary church here. And in fact, I think we're given a couple of reminders here. First of all, in this portion of scripture, are we not reminded of the total supremacy of the God of the Bible? Aren't we? Because just just Think with me for a moment about our country just now. Like, think about the United Kingdom. Think about the stuff you hear from your friends and at work and on the news. What do you see as a Christian looking around Britain? You see, I, I would say, you would see the erosion of biblical values. Is anyone going to grumble or argue about that? I doubt it. You see the erosion of church attendance. Don't you? I think it's barely a week goes by that we don't get some survey that says no one goes to church anymore. Okay, what else do you see when you look around Britain? You see a rise in opposition to the Christian faith, don't you? Militant atheism. Yes. The dramatic rise of Islam in this country. Now, hang on a second. Do you see the temptation that is laid before you there? The temptation as we look around is to deduce that Christianity is failing. Isn't that the temptation? To, to think, wait a minute, Christianity seems to be faltering. It seems to be failing. It's soon going to be conquered throughout the world. And what does God say to you here? What does he remind you of in First Samuel 4? He says, I am sovereign 
over everything. Isn't that it? He reminds us here that he is the sovereign God of the universe. Yes, it may as here look sometimes as though the people of God are, are failing. It might look like false gods sometimes as here that they're winning out. And what does God say to us tonight? No, 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 no. The God of the Bible, he reigns. And the second thing that we're reminded of is surely the victory that God has already won for you and for me. Because see when you read 1 Samuel chapter 5, see when it's read out, as a Christian, what do you think? Where does your mind, your heart go? Doesn't it go to Calvary? Doesn't it go to Golgotha? Because what happened at the cross? You had the one who was the presence of almighty God and what happened at Calvary he went toe to toe with Satan the one who stands behind all false idols and all false gods and what happened behind those closed doors of the spiritual realm at Calvary looked at all the world just as this as though Yahweh was defeated the head of Christ hanging limp and death he looks defeated and what was happening at the cross Yahweh was causing Satan to fall and to fall to the dirt you see at the cross. Christ is here. He won the victory. He crushed Satan's head. We look in 1 Samuel 5 and we see our God is a God who triumphs and has triumphed over evil and sin. So the victory of God Second thing that we see in 1 Samuel chapter 5 is the rejection of God in the hardened hearts of men. The rejection of God in the hardened hearts of men. Okay, how's this for a scenario this evening? (coughs) Excuse me, let's say you were one of the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 5. In fact, let's go a bit further. Let's say you were the very Philistine who opened the door to the temple on that second day. So you see, (laughs) you've opened the door and you see Dagon lying there and his hands are cut off and the only thing that's in there is the Ark of the Covenant. I'm asking you, how do you think you would react? tell you how I hope that I would react if I had not done so up to now I to see this I would bow before Yahweh I would bow before God would you not is that not what you would think you would do and isn't it isn't it fascinating to see how the Philistines respond do you see what they do they do not worship Yahweh what do they do they they worship the dirt where Dagon fell to the ground. Do you see that? Look at verse 5. It's ridiculous. They ignore their, They ignore Yahweh. There's no repentance. There's no wonder at the power. And instead, look at that. They revere the threshold of the, the temple. Are you not with me when I, when I say like the blindness there? This sort of spiritual hardness is kind of, it's, it's, it's beyond belief that that's what they could be like. But it gets worse. Let's approach it like this. Um, before I became a minister at LCPC, I used to think 
that the kids game past the parcel was a relatively straightforward and positive game. I'm sure everyone's played past the parcel if you maybe have to think back a few years. But you know the game, there's music, you're sitting in a circle, the, par- the parcel comes to you, you want the parcel to come to you, right? You want to, you want to rip off the first, you're hoping you're going to be the one who gets the prize. I thought it was straightforward, really positive game, but if you were at the Christmas party last year at LCPC, you would see the Pass the Parcel takes on a sinister twist in London, because now, yeah, you're sitting in a circle of music stops, but the parcel comes to you, you rip it off, and you've got to do a consequence. That's how it was. You had to like sing a song, or you had to hop round, and that changes that changes everything now, doesn't it? Because you don't want the parcel. Like, no way, you want to pass this on as quickly as possible. You don't want to make a fool of yourself and sing a song or whatever it might be. Get, it's a hot potato. Get, get rid of it. Isn't that, though, in all seriousness, isn't that what happens? Isn't the attitude just like that in First Samuel 5? Because do you see what happens as you move into this chapter? Like, because of the wickedness, the filth of the Philistines, God turns on them. And these people in Ashdod, they are inflicted with tumors. It looks like it's bubonic plague. There's mention of rodents later on in the next chapter. Now, now come on. What are you expecting to happen? They've witnessed Dagon fall. What do you think is going to happen? They've witnessed Dagon fall. They are now being, they know as well. They know that it's the ark that's causing this affliction. What do we expect? We expect them in fear and awe to fall before God. What do they do? They play pass the parcel. They too, they don't worship Yahweh. They pass as quickly as they can. They pass the ark onto the city of Gath. Now, if you're on the ball, if you're alert, you'll have noticed what we're supposed to see. We're supposed to see that there is increased terror when that ark goes to Gath. Because it gets to Gath, this time it's not just tumors. You see that there is panic Panic in the hearts of the people, panic in the minds of these people. So again, come on again, what do you expect? If there's increased terror and they know that it's from the ark, we're expecting men to fall and to worship and to repent. They pass it on to Ekron. In Ekron, did you notice people dying everywhere? And yes, they turn. And yes, they cry out to heaven. But there is not a hint of repentance. In fact, look at verse 11. Doesn't it sum the whole thing up? What's their attitude? Is it worship? Is it repentance? Send the ark away! Send God out of here! And tonight, friends, I want you to see that that there is the attitude of humanity to Almighty God. And I want you to consider this, that we, in our evangelistic efforts, we do not sufficiently appreciate how blind people are. That in this church we're not fully appreciating the hardness of the human heart. Now listen to what I'm going to say, three words. Men hate God. They 
hate God. And if we are going to be effective witnesses to the gospel in this city, we've got to appreciate they hate Christ. They hate God. And it's just the same as this. Isn't it in London? Like, the people would rather their broken idols in London than turn and worship God, wouldn't they? It's the same as this, that even if the affliction is atrocious in London, people resist the idea of turning to God. Again, no matter how many opportunities God allows them, what do people do? They resist God. And as in Ekron, the same in London, even when people are faced with death, Even when death stares them in the face, they still reject God. I I wasn't going to say this. I will. My first pastoral visit uh, years ago in Kirkcaldy, I went to see a woman and she was in her late 80s and the woman was riddled with cancer and she was, I mean, death was there. It was right there. And I got to know her in this cafe. And I got to know her well. And, and you know, she just so hard. That even there, she did not want me to pray. She did not want to hear me read scripture. She did not countenance the idea of me speaking to her about Jesus Christ, about salvation. Do you see, even when death is there, people hate God. Now, is there is there anything that we can do? Is there, you know the answer. What must we do as a church? We must be in the air on a Sunday. We must be in the air on a Thursday. We must be pleading with Almighty God because what do we know to be true? Only the power of God, only the work of the Holy Spirit can change even those hearts of darkness. So we see the grand victory of God, we see the rejection of God, and then we end lastly here with the glory of God in the final defeat of wickedness. I, 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 to close the sermon tonight, I, I want to I want to ask you the same question that I asked you two weeks ago. And it's this, why does, when you look at 1 Samuel 5, why does God allow these events to happen? I'm sure you see that the logic of the question, why does God interact with this evil people? I mean, he doesn't have to. He could have, in chapter 4, he could have granted the victory to Israel. He could, could he not, have immediately had the ark returned from the Philistines? I mean, these people are horrific. They're wicked. They're off. Why does Almighty God interact with these people? Now, to answer that, I want you... Now, we're ending with this, okay? But I want you to think about Winston Churchill. And I want you to think about the the change in public perception there was with Winston Churchill. Now, we'll end with this, so stick with me. See, in the 1930s, I'm sure some of us know our Winston Churchill history better than than others, but in the 1930s, Churchill was in the political wilderness, really. 
He held some views about India that were really particularly unpopular at the time. Nobody wanted anything to do with Winston Churchill. He was nowhere. That's the 30s. Now, everyone in here knows the picture of, of Churchill, that portrait of Churchill by 1945. He's down in Whitehall, and he's in a balcony, and he's, he's waving his hat around, and you've got multitudes of people, and they're all screaming for Churchill. Are they? They're, there's this, he's, he's receiving all of this praise and adulation, right? What a change in public perception. What caused the change in public perception? It's the obvious thing to say between 1930s, 1945, yeah, the war. Do you see it? That by Churchill taking on, fighting the evil of the Nazi party, by Churchill fighting and defeating Adolf Hitler, there's this massive change that comes about and that people are now giving him adulation, they're giving him praise. And isn't that the answer to the question, why does this happen here? Because think about the previous chapter. Like the people of Israel, they were not giving God due honor. Was that not the point? Do you remember this from last time out? Like God was in the wilderness as far as the people of, of, of Israel were concerned. They weren't, they weren't given a time of day. So what does God do? God does this. Like he, he fights evil. One commentator says this, that in this chapter we've read, God marches triumphantly through Philistine lands. Do you see what he does here? He destroys evil. Why? To show his people what he is really like. Isn't that it? By the end of this chapter, what do the people of Israel see? They've been ignoring God. What do they see now? They see after all of this. They see he is a God of incredible power. He is a God who is good, a God who does not tolerate sin. And I think, honestly, that is a principle that can help you and I in apologetics. I think it's a principle that can help us in evangelism. Because you know what it's like, don't you? At work or on the TV, we always hear the same thing. If God was really a God of love, wouldn't he save everyone? I mean, why does God ordain things? Why does God cause people to perish? Why does God not save everyone? Isn't the answer the same? Friends, God has resolved to give people free will. God has allowed people to choose the evil that they desire. Why? To reveal to you and me just who he is. He's ordained things the way that he has so that on the last day, through the destruction of wickedness, through the destruction of evil on that final day, what will you see? What will you know? You will know, yes, our God is all-powerful. As here, through the destruction of wickedness and evil, we will know our God is good and supremely, as here, through the destruction of evil, we will know on the final day, ours is a God who is deserving of all praise. So I'll end where we begun. Do you remember where we begun? How did C.S. Lewis describe Aslan? He is not safe, but he is good. Can that not also be said of the God that we worship? Should that not be something that informs and colors your worship tonight? 
He is not safe, but he is good. And if you are not a Christian this evening, do you not look at 1 Samuel chapter 5 and shudder? You see there that God is a God who does not tolerate wickedness. Do you not look at this chapter and see your need of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he is the one, the only one, who has faced that wrath that we might be free. Friend, will you not do what the Philistines stubbornly refused to do this evening? Will you not bow? Will you not worship? Will you repent before the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah? Let's pray.